So welcome to our podcast today. I'm particularly excited about this podcast. Um, We're going to be talking about dynamically active students in our classroom. And this is just something that is really near and dear to my heart. And and the more I research it, the more I get excited. So I hope that as you listen today, there will be a lot of takeaways for you. My name is Melanie Cooper, and I have previously taught many things, including early childhood and first grade and second grade. And lastly, I've taught third grade teaching math and science. And I'm really excited about a new position I have next year where I'm going to be the stream teacher for pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade. And if you want to know more about stream, then we're going to have a podcast on that too. But today I've asked a very special friend to uh, talk with us about this dynamically active classroom, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Thanks, Millie. Thanks for having me, too. I'm Sandra Consilio. I am the Director of Learning for Mind Research, um, and I'm transitioning into this role, kind of like Melanie is transitioning to a new role. And previously, um, I was the... K-12 math and science coordinator for Brazosport ISD in Texas. So we're going to start our discussion today. There's a lot of talk about dynamically active classrooms, engaged classrooms, and as I started doing some research, I began to see there's a huge difference between what engaged looks like and what dynamically active looks like. So Sandra, walk us through what a dynamically active classroom looks like. So there's four things um, that I would suggest that an educator thinks about um, in their classroom that makes it actively engaged. So really, I'm gonna ask you to kind of tackle a mindset that you might have as a teacher as we go through today's podcast. Um, and you might have to shift some of your thinking. Um, So an actively engaged classroom is so much more than just a student paying attention. Um, A well-behaved student who doesn't disrupt or one that probably completes all of the work you've asked them to complete um, could be perceived as engaged um, or rather should we identify them as obedient or compliance. Um, So the supervisor walks into a teacher's classroom, they're evaluating whether the students are engaged, and it's on the supervisor's paper, it's simply check yes, check no. Um, This really makes it one-dimensional. So a actively engaged classroom is so much more than that. So here's some things to look for. Is the classroom student-led? Is the learning that's happening student-led? Does the task or work allow the student to personalize their response? Can they bring their experience to for the work to make their own understanding or gain new understanding. And we'll, we'll talk more about this later in the conversation, but basically we want them to have their own experience to connect to the learning. Um, we wanna make sure that students in an actively engaged classroom are using their critical thinking skills. Um, how are they using the work that they're doing in class to observe, analyze, interpret, reflect, evaluate, inform, explain, problem solve or just make decisions. These are the skills that students can learn as early as pre-K and even younger. We create tasks that allows them to observe and reflect with their experiences. Employers, and I know your little pre-K babies are not talking about employers right now, but these are the soft skills that employers are looking for that that are more important than just content knowledge um, in the workforce. Um, And then of course this leads us into collaboration. Another important, sorry, excuse me, important skill that employers are looking for. If we focus on pre-K, collaboration can be seen through play, through sharing, taking turns, encouraging students to trust one another, and promoting open communication. As educators, imagine what learning could look like if these traits were built and encouraged since pre-K. In an upcoming podcast that you've invited me back for, we'll kind of visit how and what, what this collaboration looks like through STEM. And then fourth uh, thing that you want to see in an actively engaged classroom is reflection. Um, One of the questions you specifically asked me to share in this podcast is how and why student reflection is important in learning. So we'll be brief here. But students need a way that allows for them to step back from the learning to develop critical thinking skills so that they can improve on future experiences. Reflecting allows the students to grow 
and develop their understanding at a deeper level. And reflecting relates the lesson or the work that they're doing in your classroom to their own experiences. It gives them personal meaning. It makes it more than just memorizing facts, formulas, dates, or just coloring in the number on a worksheet. Excellent. I love those thoughts. So let's take time for a minute. Let's think about what you just said and let's look at what we often see in a classroom of engaged students. So they're finishing their work. We're in an early childhood classroom and one set of students may be coloring. The others may be building with blocks. Some are playing with trucks. So they're working. They're, they're doing what we've asked them to do. Um, if you're in a kindergarten classroom, possibly they're turning in their assignments. Um, we assess them so they've done their assessment. And as an educator, and even in an early childhood classroom, so it's time for me to assess. And all of a sudden I realize, well, my students were engaged, they were doing their work, they, they colored in their little letter A, but why is it they still don't know any of their letters or numbers? Maybe it's because of this difference. So why do you think they're not retaining? What does mind research say about this? So we want to ensure that the, it's true engagement. Remember that supervisor checklist of yes or no students are engaged? Is it one dimensional or have we given it more meaning than that? Um, so it's, it's, we want to make sure that they are dynamically learning um, or do we want them just to be complacent and compliant? So retention of information doesn't happen if we're merely doing rote action or rote memory. So think about the difference between rote learning versus meaningful learning. Are they just checking things off of a list? Are they memorizing something for you so they can be a good student? Or are they having meaningful learning where they or are ex connecting their experiences? They are making predictions based off what their previous understanding is to make connections to the new understanding. Okay. That is amazing. So let's think about, I, I'm gonna talk a little bit about what we would typically see in an early childhood classroom because as an educator, I feel like the research suggests I need to make some changes, just like you talked about earlier. We're gonna have to kind of challenge ourselves to think a little differently. So I'm gonna introduce letter B this week in my classroom. So I've got some phone letter Bs out. Um, I've got some sand where they can trace the B. I may have stamps that they can use. We're learning about community helpers because we know that they need to learn about their community and what's around them. So they can dress up like a police officer or a nurse. Um, I give them some shapes to match. But at the end of the week, it's kind of like when I call my grandson and I say, what did you learn today? And he's three. He'll say letters, knowing that I'm going to ask which one. He'll say ABCs because he doesn't remember. But as I know his teacher has been engaging him. I know he's been doing hands-on activities. So why is he not remembering what he's learned at school that day? So I, I'm starting to see a pattern here, and the research supports it, that there's a huge difference and an engaged classroom and a dynamically active classroom. So let's talk a little bit about what the difference is or how to have a dynamically active classroom. I think we all can agree that we want engagement, but how Definitely. do we get that? Students need to move past their initial engagement when we first hook, line, and sinker with that engaged piece of the very five, first five minutes of a lesson, how do we keep that level of engagement and keep make them become motivated about the learning that's happening as we continue through the, the lesson? So we should challenge them at a deeper level. If we want change, mostly teachers just need to shift their thinking. Exactly. It's not just changing their actions. It's not the next best strategy. It's not the next best a way to group your kids or the next best model, but just a shift in thinking of 
how can I get them to be motivated and think differently or do differently? Uh, Mind Research has an ebook that you can download from their blog that's called Rethinking Student Engagement. So we need to think differently. We also need to do differently. I'm going to go back to my math coordinator for just a second um, and specifically target some data, um, st national statistics on math for our, our students. Fourth grade math students, 40% of them are proficient in math. When they get to eighth grade, Melanie, the number does not get better. It only gets worse. Only 34% of them are proficient. And then as they get ready to graduate high school, 25% of our students are proficient in math. So let's change our thinking. Everything we do is a chance to learn. And we learn by doing. Um, and so for math specifically, any activity can become a math activity. How can you intrigue the students to see how the math is in whatever they're doing? How can you interact um, and create some dynamic math interaction with every lesson that you do? Um, and then just have the students inform. Don't let them stop at the answer. That's the only the beginning. Um, I think sometimes and just doing differently is a, a math trick that another colleague, colleague friend shared with me and she says i have these great sentences stories that my students are going to memorize and they're going to have all their facts memorized and one of them that holds in my mind sadly is that my dad promised me a truck when i turned 16. he's going to buy me a four by four well what math is in there melanie um four times four equals 16. yeah what else did you learn um, that she's 16 or she's going to be 16. Yeah. And she's going to get a truck. Ooh. But do you truly have that conceptual understanding of what 16 is or what four times four is? Did you hear anywhere in that story that four groups of four create 16? Exactly. And so it's not about the trick, but that the learning can help move us to inform what's happening. Uh, we want to just not hook the student initially, but we want to keep them there throughout the learning. For this to happen, we have to throw out the failure's not an option phrase because we truly want it to be an option. Very much needs to be an option. Absolutely. We want students failing early. We want them failing often, and we want them to keep at the learning. And we accomplish this through formative, informative feedback. Um, so when you're failing, what is it that you're observing or analyzing or revising that's going to help refocus or to adjust your response to what, the, what you're learning? And so are you learning from the feedback that you're giving? Um, think for a second, lecture versus conversation. What's happening when you're in a lecture? You're sitting and just watching the teacher. Yeah. Are you dynamically active in the conversation? No. But in a conversation that might be two-way, you might have back and forth dialogue going on. Granted, not all conversations are equal. So, and another danger that, you, that happens is being duped by the understanding that in the moment, you understand. But as soon as that learning stops and you leave that situation or you leave that classroom, that the understanding goes away too. So when the learning stops, do you still have an understanding of it? Um, and so ask yourself as an educator these three questions to have your dynamic active classroom. What are your students doing? If they're sitting through a lecture or watching a video or reading a book, they might be engaged, but they're not dynamically active. They're not responding to something. Um, and in the work that the students are doing, how many meaningful decisions are your students having to make? Are they checking off a list? They're completing a task? They're giving you the answer that you want, or are they making some meaningful decision in that work? And then what kind of feedback are you giving your students? Think about the last time you had to write an essay and you wrote your rough draft, you gave it to your teacher, she gave you some feedback, you went back and made some revisions, you tried again, handed it to her again, had another conference, maybe made a few more edits or revisions, and it was not until you had that very final draft that she finally said, this is your final draft, this is your grade. When do we offer that other times to students in learning? When do we offer it in math and say, 
here's where your thinking is. Can you take this informative feedback and go make a revision and then come back? It's not an option in other subjects most of the time. So as Brian LaTondra says on uh, one of the blogs on mind research, it's titled, What is Dynamic Active Student Engagement? Um, he reminds us that we wanna create that experience where students move past the initial engagement and are motivated throughout the entire learning. So I love those concepts because it just reminds us as educators that we've got to remember that even though the children are occupied, they're not having behavioral problems, and they may even be excited about learning, they're not retaining. And I, I kind of go back to my grandson when he builds his trains, and this is what I want the early childhood educators to think about. Um, he built a train track the other day, and he wanted a very specific piece. And he knew what that piece was, and he had a picture in his mind, and he kept recreating his train track until it was the way he had pictured it in his head. And he kept communicating with me through the whole process. So I could have said, no, that's fine, let's move on. But I allowed him that opportunity to collaborate with me and to continue learning until he had it in the way he saw necessary. So I know that meaningful conversation is really important in this dynamically active classroom. And we know that preschoolers love to converse. So I was thinking about your um, lecture versus engaged while ago as far as if you're reading a book to preschoolers, typically they're not just sitting there staring at you. They want to add to the story, which is exactly the point you're going to bring out next. So in a, in a classroom, what does that student-led learning look like? And and how does that meaningful conversation tie to it? And earlier we discussed, remember those four parts or those four suggestions for actively engaged. Um, one was the student-led learning, the other was the collaboration. But on that collaboration, I wanna focus on that open communication, promoting, even with pre-K, we can promote open communication when we have them pair together and work together um, and build trust with one another so that they can have those meaningful conversations. Um, so seven, seven ways, and I'll be brief here, um, student choice. Are you giving them the autonomy to, um, to have some student choice? Not that they're having more work because they're an earlier fin early finisher and they need something else to, to work on, but giving them the opportunity to select a project that interests them or the questioning type that you might be asking. This could even be down to time, and I, and, and I wanna focus here because of your, your early childhood educators, but the time for them to have open exploration when you first bring out a manipulative. So think about um, the counting bearers or place value box or the shapes, and they're moving them and rotating them. Um, what, what do they explore and how do they interact with those manipulatives because then you begin to see what experiences they already have with those items. They can make an experience that later on might connect to the, the learning that you're going to bring to them. Um, another way to kind of see some of the student choice is through just a card sort. I don't know how many times I've handed pictures of plants and animals to a student and then I've heard teachers say, you're going to sort the cards this way. It's exactly. very locked to what the teacher has directed them to, to sort it by and that becomes closed. So what about an open sort? And just hand the cards and say, sort them. And then have a conversation. How did you sort? And why did you sort? And what attributes did you see that caused you to want to sort it that way? And you begin to see all these other experiences that open up. Um, you can have some student-led through open-ended conversation or open-ended questioning um, because then students can respond in more than one way. They can debate and defend their responses. And they begin to find out that their thoughts matter. It's not a very locked-in answer or canned answer that the teacher is looking for. Um, and it encourages them to be problem solvers. Allow time for the students to brainstorm and process. Um, the reflection begins to create space and time for them to um, be independent and and grow as a group when they're doing group work as well. Um, and we want it to be self-paced. Sometimes them doing everything on a time schedule doesn't work for their learning style. So making it 
their pace. But don't let that again, don't let that turn into, they get more work because they work faster. Um, and take the time for the learning um, to be involved as a community. You mentioned earlier that I, I had a, maybe a lesson where they get to grow, dress up as a community learner, but what are they learning something for and were they applying an understanding to that? And so can your learning become community-based, um, a, a community-based project where they, they transfer that understanding and gain new experiences? Um, remind me to talk um, about a, um, a project that we've seen done through STEM when we have that conversation later on. Um, avoid the, you know, the, the drill and kill of skills type lesson and have explicit instruction where you pull the student right into the heart of instruction and make them active participants in it. Um, and then just encourage those group um, and collaborative, collaborative projects where they appreciate diversity and they learn the from strengths of others and differing viewpoints of others. When I first started this, I was really worried about finding good scholarly research on the difference between the two. But I was really surprised and as I uh, got onto the mind research because I know everything they do is, is definitely scholarly reviewed. I also found an interesting uh, research article by Arthur Costa and Bennett Halleck. And their statement is that dynamically active classrooms are places where learning is a continual process of transforming their mind. And that's what it's about. From the first time they walk into their, our classroom, we're trying to transform their minds. And when we do, then I believe we see those test scores reflected. But what's kind of odd is in an early childhood setting, when we start talking about critical thinking, I think people kind of back off a little thinking they're too young for that. So let's address that a little bit. So the critical skill that we want those students, even at this very young age, is that critical skill of being able to reflect and inform their own learning. It's, they have to do it. I'm gonna borrow a quote from Einstein. And it says, if you can't explain it, do you even understand it? And so, so many times we've asked children to do something and then I've heard parents say, okay, now tell me what you're gonna do. So for them to know, the mom wants to know, do you know what I'm asking you to do? And so the child has to be able to explain it back because it's gonna show the mom she knows what you do. So give time for the students to reflect, adjust their thinking, defend, debate their responses with informative feedback whether it's from peers, teachers, or even their own reflection. Even as young as pre-K, we should allow students to reflect on their understanding and reflect on their learning. For our youngest learners, this may be simply through a sentence stem, where the, student, the teacher provides the stem, the student responds to it and, and dictates their understanding. Um, this could be through a number talk, where the teacher says, who can build the number five? And there's many different ways to build the number five. There might be different objects in the room that helps the student make a connection to how to build number five. And it simply can be by allowing the student to experience a little bit of productive struggle. Um, and productive struggle means that we're not gonna jump in the moment they say, I can't. Rather, let's have that mindset of, I'm having trouble right now, but I'm gonna get it with a little bit of help. Exactly. So let's take a baby for example. Baby's approaching one years old. He's gonna start walking. walking. He stumbles a little bit. Mom picks him up and says, we're done. You're not gonna walk. I'm gonna carry you the rest of your life. Is that how moms respond? Absolutely not. No. We want them to walk. Yes, so we, they fall down, pick them back, put them at the starting line, try it again. Fall down again and mom picks them up all the way and allows a little bit of productive struggle and each time or each day they gain a few more steps because we're not going to say i'm going to carry you the rest of your life so don't carry the babies the rest of your life allow them a little bit of time for productive struggle and reflect on what's happening absolutely that is such great advice so let's just kind of review this dynamically active classroom. And I hope those of you that are listening are getting some really great takeaways from this. So we are wanting children that are thinking deeply about what is happening. 
what is 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 really going on and uh, we want them to understand they can make changes so their project can be successful and when they do this then they began to get that conceptual understanding and, and it's just such a big difference in their learning i mean as i started studying this i keep going back to the block center the block center is just this whole new concept to me now because there's so much critical thinking involved with that and the kids can make what they want to of it and just with a small amount of guidance they're in control of their learning and it, it's just an exciting time so one more thing i wanted to address before we end today is mind research had a cycle of learning and um, as i've taught college students there i teach them this type of cycle of learning and the research really focuses in on when this is happening success comes along with it so would you address that just a little bit so i am i am again i'm going to to preface this by saying read the blog in its entirety um, the blog is on mindresearch.org it is titled what perception action cycle tells us about how the brain learns um, because we, we are hard hardwired to learn by doing um, I think for <laughs> most of you may have seen this uh, if you're on social media you've probably seen the video of the little boy standing in front of mom holding the onion and he keeps begging to have it can I please eat the onion can I please eat it and she's like no 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 you're not gonna like that and he finally she says you know what go ahead have a bite of it and most of you if you're like me know what happens because onions raw by themselves are, are not the best mm -hmm. and so the child immediately learned by biting the apple or not the apple the onion that he truly did not like it and so he learned by doing that it wasn't what he wanted and um, but I I'm going to switch gears for just a second and think about the example of um, making my mom spaghetti. I constantly asked her over and over again just to make it for me. Make it for me. I'll come to you. You make it for me. I'm going to just go open my jar of spaghetti sauce. But until I finally learned by doing it myself, was I able to master what each little measurement of ingredient was to make it taste like hers. So... Well, boy had to learn about the onion by doing. I had to learn to make spaghetti sauce by doing as well. And so this perception cycle, before we can take action or make a decision, the brain has to process new information that's being shared, as well as reviewing the stored experiences and the memories. So when thinking about my mom's spaghetti sauce, then the first time I tried to make it by myself, I knew what it should taste like. I tasted it before, so my new information of this new sauce I had made was going to compare to that memory. So this is the prefrontal cortex that's working in the brain, and it's helping you to make a prediction about what will help it happen. It perceives the outcome of your actions, either developing a new understanding or developing an existing understanding that you have. There is ongoing flow of information between the brain and the experience. So you're sensing, you're predicting, you're acting, you're adjusting. You're sensing, you're predicting, you're acting, adjusting. That cycle continues. We'll talk more about how we use this very similar cycle in that STEM podcast you've invited me for. But how does this perception cycle look in schools? The most obvious one way that we usually see this is through manipulatives, hands-on experiences. Hands-on develops a conceptual understanding of math it doesn't give you the tricks. There's no surface level of memorization so that students are being able to take the experience from the hands-on and apply it to that conceptual deeper understanding later on, but not through the tricks. Uh, there's a word here we're going to use, schema. Educators have heard it. Educators use it. But do we really under have an, a true understanding? So schema builds in units between relationships and experience. So think about a little child he sees this round object, he calls it a ball. He sees another round object, he calls it a ball. And another round object, he calls it a ball. And he just, everything that's round goes into the schema that he started of ball. But as he grows and gets older, he begins to realize, well, that black and white one is called a soccer ball. And this oblong one is called a football. And this small white one with red stitching is called a baseball that's hit with a stick. And this little hard 
white one with dimples in it with a metal stick is called a golf ball. And so he begins to build his schema for understanding balls that there's different types of balls. And then as he gets older and starts to begin to play sports, he begins to build that schema again that there's rules to using these balls and there's techniques to using these balls. And so his becomes greater where mine has stopped, but each ball has a name. Whereas my daughter has a schema that's beyond mine for soccer because she knows what the, the rules are to the game. She knows how to play the sport. She knows how to kick. She knows how to, you know, dribble, all those different terms. So we don't want to teach the concepts in relation, in, in isolation, but rather teach them in relation to one another. So think about an instructional document or unit document to receive as a teacher, and it has that background section that says, how does this connect to previous learning? Well, that's there for a reason, because we want teachers to teach things together, not in isolation. When you do a number talk, it's not, I did a number talk check, I did a problem solving check, but how can you start having those number talks and problem solve through what you're teaching and making those connections so that they have the experience that helps them start this perception cycle to go on and on. And it just, when you make those connections, you activate the perception cycle, you build the student schema, and then you start freeing up space for learning information. Such excellent thoughts. So we can think about that the students aren't really consuming, they are actually processing and understanding. And I go back to Mason's train track. In his head, he predicted and he knew what he wanted his train track to look like. So he began to take action, but he perceived that it wasn't turning out the way he wanted to. So he reflected on how to change it made those changes and that happens several times and that's the way it works. So just one more bit of research we have because I want everybody to understand that you have to really work to find this research but it is out there and it's something that I really wanna see us do even more research on. But some research by Bustamante, Greenfield and Nyfield believe that a dynamically active classroom is where children are exploring they're asking questions, they're developing critical thinking skills, and they're collaborating with their classmates. So I hope as we've gone through today that you can think about some of this and apply it to your classroom because I think this is what's gonna make a difference in our classroom. So thank you for joining us. Have a good evening. Well, welcome back to our podcast. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the importance of STEM education in the early childhood classroom. And if you've listened to any of our other recordings or podcasts, you've heard us mention STEM or STEAM or STREAM a little bit. And our focus today is going to be on that STEM classroom. So, my name is Melanie Cooper, and I have taught all ages from birth on up and into the college level, and last year I had the privilege of teaching third grade math and science, and this year I'm really excited about my new assignment. I'm going to be teaching pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade stream for Brazosport ISD here in the Texas area. So we're gonna be focusing on what that's going to look like. And I have with me a dear friend who is now transitioning out of the district into a new position, and I'm gonna let her introduce herself. Thanks for having me again, Melanie. I appreciate the invite. Um, so I am Sandra Concilio. I am the Director of Learning for Mind Research. And in the previous blog that Melanie invited me to join in on, I got to lean a lot on that new role and share the research about dynamically active versus engaged um, that we're doing, the research that we've conducted at Mind Research. Um, but today, talking about STEM in the classroom, I get to lean on my previous experiences as the K-12 Math and Science Coordinator for Brazosport ISD in Texas. So the first thing we wanna understand is that a STEM or STREAM classroom or STEAM, and we'll talk about the difference in a minute, is that dynamically engaged classroom that we've been talking about versus just engaged. So if you talk about STEM, it's an acronym that is where we're using engineering skills to solve a problem. And so for STEM, that involves science, 
technology, engineering, and math. Um, some have come along and added the art component to that, and when they do, it becomes STEAM. And in our district, as we're going to talk about, we have added reading and writing, so it becomes STREAM. So I'd like for you to give us an idea what the STREAM classroom looks like in our district as we begin our talk today. So I want you to picture a K-2 classroom. Um, it looks very similar to a science lab. Um, they're in a K-2 classroom. They are giving a problem and each group has to come up with a solution. But that really is what it boils down to. There is not a, here's your step-by-step -step that you're going to do. Here's your desired outcome. Um, they have some criteria to follow and they have to do some problem solving as K first and second grade students. I think for example, um, one where they take a twist on the three little pigs and the three little pigs are going, um, they are going on a s sleigh or a snow s a slope to slide down and they're in a sled. Um, and the criteria that, that's provided to them is that they have to be in the sled. There has to be three seats. There has to be seat belts and they have to problem solve how they're going to keep them in and what this sled might look like. Um, in a third and fourth grade stream lab, um, again, you're in a very similar setting that looks like a science lab. Um, there's six, four to six different missions happening based on student interest and they're grouped in that manner. Um, you might have somebody who's working in a crime lab and they're trying to figure out who stole the cookies from the cookie jar and they're, they're t measuring the teeth on a plate or they are um, studying landforms and building volcanoes and what causes them to erupt or somebody that's studying the night sky and constellations that are seen in each season. And so it's all of these different body systems. And I mean, I, there's just so many different ones that you can choose, the students choose from and work in those groups. And they're happening at the same time. There's none of them that are in isolation. Um, and the reason that we chose to go with this in BISD, um, one was our pathways. When students get into seventh and eighth grade um, and they're starting to prepare for high school, they have to choose a pathway. And so they, they get locked into this pathway in high school and that becomes part of their graduation plan. And so they can go on a STEM pathway, they can go on a business pathway, they can go on, um, there's other, there's, there's different ones. And so and when you ask a seventh and eighth grader, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And a lot of them are still saying, I'm gonna be a famous baseball player or I'm gonna be a basketball player. Um, and so they don't really know what those careers look like and what those options are. And we're talking about careers that may not even be options at this point. And so we wanted them to know what type of careers were out there. And so we wanted to target some of those pathways and give them information that go with those pathways. The other thing is the one thing that we hear constantly from employers is students don't have the soft skills. And so, and we hear from the high school and secondary educators that we need more soft skills and so think about what your classroom could look like if we taught critical skills at the very earliest level um, and then we taught them how to be collaborative and communicate with others and that their thoughts mattered and that there was you know to be able to appreciate differences in opinions of other people and so those are two of the real big reasons that we went this um, had this movement in BISD. I like that you uh, mentioned employers because when I was doing some research to actually interview for the job, I was astounded to find that the, the STEM jobs were extensive. And it didn't just include like engineers at chemical companies. It involved contractors, it involved artists, choreographers, all of those jobs, and that's what really got me excited is, I can start preparing these little guys now for a STEM future, and the jobs are rampant. I mean, people are begging for these kids to come out of school with these STEM backgrounds. So I took the liberty before we did this podcast, and I went to NACI, because I wanted to see what NACI's research said on it. And NACI is the National Association for the Education of Young Children. 
and they actually have a lot of good things to say about STEM in the classroom. And the first thing they point out is STEM is laying a foundation for later success in school, but they believe it's the job of early educators to start it. Okay, not just, so that's why I'm excited that in my school, I'm gonna to get to do early childhood because NACI tells us that's really important. And they also talk about test results. And, and we know within our district, we're working so hard to raise the bar. And we're going to need to start that at the early childhood level. And STEAM and STEM and STREAM, all of those, the research is telling us it's making a huge difference in the child's scores, in their future, all of those things. So one of the things NACI had, or that I found on the NACI site was, they uh, did a little research of their own. So they took a group of children and they had some work as a team, and then they sent some children other, to the other side of the room and they were told to work alone. So the children who worked together were given a STEM activity, much like you were talking about a while ago, really open-ended. They just had to solve some type of problem. And the, the person doing the research noticed that the children that were doing the STEM activity were totally engaged, they were communicating, they were collaborating, they were trying different things, and they also appeared very confident in what they were doing. And there was a lot of like, oh, this is so much fun, and the, the children just seemed really exciting. However, the children who were working alone, they kind of did it for a little while, and then they were ready to walk away. It was like they were kind of sad that they weren't getting to do it. So this tells us that when children are interested and feeling successful in classroom, that learning is going to follow. So why do you think STEM is successful? We, we've had a year of it now for some of our schools. So why do you think it's successful? So in that research that you just shared, that little experiment that NACI conducted, it sounds like they found that perception cycle in the students where they had to move beyond that initial engagement and motivated all the way through the learning. So for the success that we've seen in our stream classrooms um, in Brazosport ISD, um, it, one is that they are dynamically active. The students are involved in what's happening. They're making meaningful decisions. They are um, not sitting and listening to a lecture or watching a video or reading a book, they are active. Um, they are reflecting on what's happening. There's meaningful decisions occurring in their choices that they're making for their problem that they're solving. They're receiving informative feedback when um, the students who are studying the body systems blow air into their fake lung and it doesn't expand what has happened with that lung? They have to go back and look at their research. They have to see what parts aren't working, what parts are working. Um, it's very much student-led because there's some student choice going on and they're working at their pace to solve their problems. The critical thinking skills that are happening, they are reflecting, they're evaluating, they're informing their actions, there's problem solving, they're making decisions, they're collaborating. So we're seeing these things happen that gets those students to move beyond that initial engagement and keeps them motivated all the way to the end. As I wrote my recent research paper, um, I did research on the dynamically active classroom and tying STEM into it. And the research was so supportive. And one of the things I mentioned in my research paper was the fact that I know there's still a lot of research needs to come in and there's a lot of data we need to gather. And uh, it's gonna be interesting to see as the district implements this across the district now, what is gonna happen. But I believe we're gonna see test scores rise and I think we're gonna see students go to my husband's physics lab here at the local junior college and be more prepared and excited about physics instead of Googling the answers just to get through the class. So I, I really believe 
that the research is, is going to continue to be positive. But what I found interesting in the research for this podcast was a lot of people believe that real, and, and, and that's their wording of it, real science, technology, engineering, and math doesn't really occur till children are older. We're exposing them to these STEM concepts in birth to eight years, but we're just laying a foundation. There's not this real learning taking place. And I, I have to say it, it really frustrated me and angered me as an educator, especially as I've been working to, to get ready for my children in the fall, because we know that research tells us that is not true. There was a two-year study found that young children are capable of engaging in at developmentally appropriate levels, scientific practices that high school students can carry out. Now notice the word developmentally appropriate, but again, we talk about, oh, that's too hard for my students. If you don't hold the bar high, they're not gonna reach for it, exactly. okay? Yep. So that's really important to remember. Preschoolers are perfectly capable of making observations, predicting what they think is gonna happen, carrying out simple experiments, investigating, collecting their data, and making sense of what they find. Trust me, when Mason gets out his trains that are magnetic, he's gonna figure out that sometimes they attract and sometimes they repel. And through his own engagement, he is learning. Now, I can guide him and we can have some, some conversation, but he is learning. So yes, he is able to learn on that scientific level. So explain what you think about those statements that I just made. And do you have any ex examples that would kind of go along with that? So I think about the one that says that um, that they're not truly learning and they're only laying a foundation for serious STEM learning that takes place later. And I think even if that's the only the surface level that we were providing to these students by having these stream labs in place, why would that not be encouraging? Why exactly. instead of them coming to high school or coming to secondary education and it being their first exposure to some type of STEM environment that we want them to have? And then those soft skills, again, I mm -hmm. talked about, you know, why would you not want them to come already prepared with that? But I definitely agree that it is not true and that the skills that we are giving them and the practices that they're carrying out are at their appropriate levels developmentally um, and that it does provide them with that opportunity to um, be the natural born scientists that they are. And um, NACI says that from the time they're born, they're intentionally exploring their environment. So let's just continue that innate ability and their, their tags that they're, you know, traits that they're gonna do anyways. Absolutely. And, and we know that when they're participating in the STEM environment, that they're thinking critically, they are much more persistent, that they, they really are, are very systematic, even in a young age, they are very systematic in their experiments. And the, the part that it goes across all subjects, because I remember being tied down to a classroom where so many minutes of this and so many minutes of this, and oh, I need to get you ready for this, and oh dear, I'm out of time for this. But in my stream classroom, it's gonna be, oh, we're out of time. Yeah. That's okay, that's all right. Our little activity can go over here. Your experiment, Mrs. Cooper will keep it safe. And when you come back in the classroom next time, we will continue exploring and learning. And that's what's so exciting. And so I really believe that stream is going to be an essential component for BISD and other school districts. And I think that our children are going to be excited about learning and really just, it's, it's just huge. And, and I think you can tell, I get excited about it every time I, I get into this discussion. So you were gonna talk about some facts that NACI presented that I thought were really good to go along with our research today. Sure, so early STEM education instruction leads to better language and literacy outcomes. When you put a group of students, four or five kids in a block center, it's never silent. So imagine when they have a problem to solve, they're excited about what they're having, doing, and they have to work together to come up with a solution. 
Again, it's not gonna be silent, and so you're gonna have some language development. You're gonna give them experience to, that makes that language even broader. Um, and then the literacy outcomes that they're, they're going to just be involved in all of that within that stream education. It leads to improved spatial thinking. So spatial temporal and, and that space and time and being mm -hmm. able to see things differently um, and, and think about what's going to happen and when you think about when you're in, stuck in traffic and you know that you need to get up the road, turn right, and you got to get three lanes over, you can picture all of that in your head because of your spatial temper, your ability to, to manage your space and time. And so these stream activities can do the same thing for our youngest learners. Um, the math skills, reading skills at the kindergarten entry are equally predictive of reading skills in eighth grade. And so we can encourage the math and the reading and build um, their grade level readiness as they go through. And then the background knowledge, those experiences that they need and those opportunities that they may not always see on their own, um, de depending on you know where they come from, where they're living, what opportunities are provided to them, but they are gaining experiences and knowledge that can later on start that perception cycle that builds and connects new learning. Oh, exactly. And I hope our listeners will really see our excitement about it. And the research behind it is truly, I, I can't use any other word, but amazing. And I wanted to just add one more. Um, when I was doing the research, there was uh, one researcher that was in a three-year-old classroom and it was a STEM classroom. And uh, the children seemed to be hovered around um, some blocks and uh, that seems to come up a lot today, the blocks. <laughs> but um, the, the children seem to have this little closed environment built and they, they all seem to be collaborating. The, the teacher was standing back and, and the, the researcher was kind of puzzled yet intrigued what was really going on. And so in a few minutes, they indicated to the teacher they were ready. Now remember, these are three-year-olds, okay? So she went over and she had a tiny marble. Now she had held the marble because they're three-year-old and you don't want them putting it in their the mouth nose. or their nose, exactly. But they indicated they were ready. She dropped the marble and suddenly the marble came out the bottom and the children cheered. They were building their own marble run with the blocks. And they, and she said they had been working on it for days trying to build it just right so the marble would go through. And these were three-year-olds. Now you tell me what those kids are gonna be like when they get to my husband's physics lab. It's gonna be amazing. So just some thoughts about STEAM and STREAM and, and STEM classrooms. And we just wanna thank you for joining us and hope you have a good evening. Good night.